London, and this is a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Joining us for the 14th episode in this series is Professor Diana Walsh Pasulka. After completing her undergraduate work at the University of California, Davis, she earned a master's degree in systematic theology from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley and later went on to receive a doctorate in religious studies from Syracuse University. Currently, she is a professor of religious studies and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Dr. Pasolka specializes in Catholic history, and her current research focuses on religious and supernatural belief and practice and its connections to digital technologies and environments. Her lectures include Taking UFOs Seriously, that is, Religiously, the belief effect of media on religion, and the fairy tale is true, social technologies and belief in the supernatural. Along with her colleague, fellow religious studies professor Jeffrey Kripal, Dr. Pasolka co-organized the conference's Emergent Technologies and New Mythologies for the Institute of Noetic Sciences and Bodies of Light and Super Saints for the Esalen Center for Theory and Research. She served as head religion advisor for the films The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2, and has received numerous grants and awards for research and applied learning, including sums from the Esalen Center in 2016 for research at Castel Gandolfo's Vatican Observatory, and in 2018 for ongoing research involving the Vatican and the Vatican Archives. Her two books, published by Oxford University Press, are Heaven Can Wait, Purgatory in Catholic Devotional and Popular Culture, and American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, Technology. She is also co-editor of Posthumanism, The Future of Homo Sapiens, which includes her chapters The Prehistory of the Posthuman and The Spectrum of Human Technohybridity, The Total Recall Effect, and of the newly released Believing in Bits, New Media and the Supernatural, which includes her chapter Where Soul Meets Technology, Catholic Visionaries and the Stanford Research Institute as Precedents for Human-Machine Interfaces and Social Telepathy Apps, co-written with David Metcalf. Her book, American Cosmic, crossed from an academic to a mainstream audience and became a bestseller in several genres. It has been optioned by Chad and Carrie Hayes of The Conjuring franchise and is being developed for television. Dr. Pasolka is asked weekly to appear on the History Channel, A&D, and other media platforms and has lectured at the Guggenheim Museum, Harvard University, and the Commonwealth Club in Silicon Valley. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, March 17th, 2021, through the magic of Zoom. Hi, Dr. Pasolka. Hi. 
Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, thank you so much for your time and for joining us here today. Uh, we have so much to cover. I've been listening to your interviews. You've been kind of doing podcasts and other interviews since around 2018. I will provide links to all of those on the episode page uh, because you have been on podcast uh, hosted by friends of mine, uh, Miguel Connors, Aeon Bite Gnostic Radio, and Gordon White's Rune Soup, and Whitley Strieber's Dreamland, and a whole host of others. You did a three-hour video interview with Lex Friedman, so I will provide links to all of those in the show notes. But what I, well, first of all, we both uh, mentioned that we would like to recognize that today is St. Patrick's Day. And I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about, since you are a his, you are a professor of the history of religions, and how does St. Patrick even figure into that? My book, Kevin Can Wait, was basically the first three chapters were about purgatory and how purgatory was a associated with caves, purgatorial caves. And one of the most famous of these caves is in Ireland um, on this lake. It's called Loch Derg. And it's on this island in Loch Derg. And so um, this was a medieval practice of Catholics, European Catholics, that they would they would purgate, right? They would do their purgatorial rites in these caves, which, by the way, when you, you went into them, you had to stay in there for 24 hours. So you were locked in this cave for 24 hours. And there could be demons and angels and things like that in these caves. And if you were alive the next day, your sins were, uh, you know, you were free from sin. So this was a, a practice. And so um, this cave was in Ireland. So I spent the first three chapters of that book in Ireland, basically talking mm -hmm. about, you know, how this developed in Ireland. And it was prior to Dante's Purgatorio, you know, mm -hmm. his Inferno and Purgatorio and the Divine Comedy. And there was a, um, a very famous, I would call it a medieval bestseller called St. Patrick's Purgatory about this knight who goes into the cave and the kinds of things that he has to endure in order to survive the 24 hours, you know, fighting demons, you know, seeing souls in purgatory mm -hmm. being, um, you know, hurt and you know, this kind of thing. So it was a really a mixture of physical and, um, and, you know, what we would consider matter and spirit as, you know, if we use that dichotomy, which I don't like to do, but mm -hmm. um, for want of a better framework, those were enmeshed in this cave in purgatory. So here we, here we're doing this interview on St. Patrick's holy day. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the last chapter where I discussed this cave, um, on the last page, I finish with the Catholic Church is upset that this cave, you know, allows people to, you know, take control of their own fate, basically their own afterlife fate. So they go to, to um, Lochderg and they, they fill in the cave. So people could no longer, and, and they do this on St. Patrick's Day in, I think it's 1497, okay? So they're doing this on St. Patrick's Day. And, you know, I mean, that's not very nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what's actually quite funny is that the people 
of the Loch, the people of the lake and the community of Loch Derg, they actually, when the officials, the Catholic officials came to, to fill in the cave, they actually had a false cave there for them oh. to, to fill in. Mm -hmm. And so when they left, they just reopened the real cave. And what is the association with St. Patrick? Okay, so St. Patrick is said to have um, put, his, put his staff on the ground. It was a, a, a legend that St. Patrick was, was supposed to have um, opened the cave with basically his staff and prayers mm -hmm. to allow people to basically uh, go, go through this so they could become, you know, they can atone for their sins. That's, so that's why the he did that. That's why he did that. And so this practice of going into a cave, this purgatory cave, was for sinners. It, it sounds like a severe form of um, of when we would go to confession as a, as a child, because I just want to, I'd like to mention to the listeners that I was raised Catholic, and so was Dr. Pasolka. So we both have Catholic background. Um, there is this would you it, so in the Catholic religion is going to confession? That is one of the I forgot what the word is. It's a sacrament. Sacrament yeah. of confession, and so you it was a private. You go into a private little little room and you confess your sins to a priest, and then the priest would give you penance. Is that the right word? Uh, it, yeah, the the priest um, basically. Um, in a prayer to God, uh, mm -hmm. you confess your sins to the priest. The priest is a stand-in there, um, and through that process, your sins are forgiven. But by God, not by the priest, but by God through the through the mediation of the priest. Mm -hmm. And then, the, but the priest would give us say you you need to say so many Hail Marys, so many Our Fathers, and that was. Is that was kind of what was so we we would leave the confessional and then we'd go sit in a pew and we would recite those prayers, and that was our our penis our our punishment or our penance. I I don't know if I'm saying the right word, but now you're saying that that these caves to me it sounds like maybe a more severe form of that. You go into these <laughs> yes, caves, right? definitely yes. <laughs> and and I never knew that those caves existed because when I was growing up, I was taught that there was heaven. There was hell and there was purgatory. And purgatory was if if you weren't good enough to get into heaven and you weren't bad enough to go into hell, you kind of had to hang out in purgatory. But I think I was told that it would last forever, that it was infinite. Oh, and, that's yeah, that's not correct. And 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 but but they're not practicing that anymore in Catholicism, from what I understand, that that was abolished with Vatican II. But my curiosity, and what I'd like to ask you about with these caves is, when was that done? And why was that stopped? And was that effective? Yes. Okay. So that's the, the, basically the, the working argument of my book, uh, Heaven Can Wait, mm -hmm. And actually what was surprising to me because I was as surprised to find purgatorial caves as anyone else, right? Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was looking for this kind of abstract doctrine, you know, uh, but the further I went back, the, the 
the more material it became, the more, you know, place centered it became. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was uh, not, I guess, I know that that was a problem as the Catholic church um, philosophers and theologians begin to think about, you know, well, do soul, our souls material things or, you know, what, what constitutes this thing we call the afterlife and purgatory and things like that. So, and it's a messy deal here with purgatory. Um, So these, these caves seem to have been around in the early medieval time period on through until uh, around the early, uh, the early modern period, which is, you know, around 1500. Okay. So they were, the, you know, so people practiced this. Now you did have to be pretty terrible to, to have to be sent to these caves or to mm-hmm. want to go to these caves. Like you probably killed somebody or did something pretty bad. Okay. Um, so it wasn't a penance for everyone. And it's called a penance, by the way, when you, when you do those, those things, those Hail Marys, and, yeah. you know, in order to, to atone for whatever sin you committed, mm-hmm. that's called a penance. And mm-hmm. it's called, and when you do go through, by the way, the um, purgatory is actually still a doctrine of the Catholic church, is it? but okay. yeah, it is actually, but, um, but limbo isn't. So I think that a lot of people were confused uh, because Pope Benedict, um, in 2007, eradicated the idea of limbo, which had been around also like purgatory for about a thousand years or more, or even longer than that, um, in the Catholic Church. And that was on the edge. It's from the Latin limbus. And it's either on the edge of heaven or it's on the edge of hell, depending on which theologian you look, you know, you look at. Um, and, you know, it was a very confusing doctrine or doctrine back then too. Not an official doctrine, but a belief. And so the the play, the destination for souls who went to lim- limbo, this destination limbo, what did it, you know, what kind of souls would go there? Um, so Socrates would probably be in limbo, um, you know, virtuous pagans, and then babies who weren't baptized. So it, it caused a lot of pain and suffering for parents who believed that when they die, they most likely eventually would get, get into heaven, but their child would remain, if it was unbaptized, would rem- and mm-hmm. died, would remain mm-hmm. in limbo. So, you know, he kind of just abolished limbo in 2007. And most, a lot of people, because they're confused about purgatory, yeah. you know, they, they didn't know what it was or, you know, we, the since Vatican II, people didn't practice the purgatorial prayers for their you know, for souls and things like that, which they did for so long. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. Um, so I, I also wondered, why is it gone? And that's what sent me back pretty much 800 years to, you know, look at where this idea came from, you know, what happened. And it, you know, it was around for a long time, but it, the the actual word purgatory wasn't actually uh, in Catholic documents until the 13th century. So then what does this say about the Catholic belief in the afterlife? Oh, it says that it's, a, it's I mean, it is a changing belief. It changes, obviously. Okay. People used to believe in limbo, and now people don't believe in limbo. Uh, you know, so popes used to talk about limbo. Pope Benedict eradicated limbo. Mm-hmm. So that's what it says about beliefs. But beliefs, of course, change and could be wrong. Uh, does that does it mean anything about the reality of those places? Um, not necessarily. I mean, if those places, as a professor, I would say, if those places exist, then they exist. Um, how we believe in them could be an imperfect, we could have imperfect beliefs about them, like we do about a lot of things, you know, like 
the flat earth, right? Well, it's not flat, but a lot of people believed that and still do actually believe that it is. And in my opinion, that's an incorrect belief. It doesn't conform to the reality. So where are we with purgatory? Uh, and and I guess I, as a child, because I, I went to catechism, I didn't go to Catholic school, but my mom did. And I haven't I haven't been practicing as a Catholic. Um, I've re my my interest has been reignited, and mostly because of your work. And I'm now wondering what it was I was taught as a child: uh, limbo or purgatory? Hmm. There. So purgatory is a pl- it's still a doctrine of the Catholic Church, and it is this place that the soul goes. Um, be- before it actually enters heaven, because it's not good enough to get into heaven. So you can go from purgatory to heaven. Oh, absolutely! Purgatory is not eternal, but limbo is. Um, yes, limbo was. Would be, yeah, it, <laughs> it was, <laughs> but it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. Well, that's good. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we could move on. So what? What I've been wanting to talk to you about. Um, because uh, maybe not all of the listeners, but some of the listeners know that I have been involved in the UFO community since, oh gosh, the 1980s when I lived in Cleveland, Ohio. And Cleveland has the the oldest continually meeting, continuously meeting UFO group in the country. Wow. The Cleveland Ufology Project, yes. Uh, we would drive over to the west side of Cleveland once a month for meetings. Um, I think I started going back in 1987. Um, so I've been wanting to talk to you about how the UFO phenomenon, the maybe the existence of non-human life elsewhere, I mean, whether it be physical uh, perhaps the this Perseverance rover that recently landed on Mars finds could find anything from microbes or to the ruins of of an ancient civilization or non-physical. How it's affected our stance on religion. Uh, I'd like to discuss how the potential proof of non-human intelligent life elsewhere, which a lot of, a lot of people are expecting that to come any day now government disclosure, but how that proof, if it comes to light, will affect the world's religions? Yes, that's a great question. And it's a question that the Vatican asks as well. They have mm-hmm. uh, conferences that, you know, that's the the main question. Um, and they consider, you know, what effects it might have on people's religious beliefs. Yeah. And I actually, I, my friend, uh, Jeff Kripal and I, we've actually talked a lot about this and um, he thinks it's going to devastate if it say it happens, it's going to devastate the kind of fundamental beliefs of religious beliefs, like the, you know, the traditional religions, Mm -hmm. you know, Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And I tend to not think that at all, actually. Um, I do know that within Catholicism, I don't think it's going to affect it at all. (laughs) I think, yeah, I, I, you know, I think that um, the Catholic church is pretty open to things that might be found. And the belief would be that 
the whole universe is created by the creator God. And therefore these things are also, if, if found, could also be, are also created by God. So that would be the belief. It would be like a theistic understanding of these uh, non-human intelligent beings. Um, what So religions posit non-human intelligent beings, right? So almost all religions, um, not all, but almost all religions have this idea that there are these kind of beings that are intelligent and they're not us. They could be angels, they could be uh, demons, bodhisattvas, you know, so there are all, you know, religion makes room for these things that rational frameworks don't make room for. And so I think that of all the, you know, belief systems, I think religions would be most adaptable to this idea. And I, I think that if anything, like atheist materialist scientists would, would, maybe have more of a, a you know learning curve <laughs> if there were to be that. yeah yeah I, that's my that's what I think I've, I mean I've talked to so many people yeah. who are religious mm-hmm. and who do believe also in um, you know UFOs and things like that that I think I have a pretty good understanding of what how how it would go my thought when you were explaining that and you mentioned angels demons bodhisattvas from from my experience, they're usually depicted in human form. Yes, they and, are. And we're taught that God made man, at least in Catholicism, God made man in his image. So if we were to encounter, let's say, what the and, – and I'm always trying to be careful with what word I use – extraterrestrials, aliens – uh, how about non-human intelligent life forms, say in the movie Arrival? Yes. They did not look human. No. So being brought up Catholic, learning that God made man in his image, and then I see the alien life form in Arrival, and I'm thinking, did God make that life form too? Sure. So those are good questions. Um, and, and I have to take each of your, I have to break down your question. Okay. If that's okay. So I'm going to kind of break it, break it down, um, so that we can look at it and I can give you an adequate answer that I hope you'll be okay with. Okay. So the first idea here is that God made man in his image. So one thing that I teach in my courses is we go back to actual, the literal translations of the Hebrew Bible okay. uh, and the creation. And when you do that, what you see is that the English translations are way off. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we go back to the Hebrew uh, and we see that there are two creation stories back to back in in the Bible. And so when we look at each of them, they're a little bit different. Um, And one of them, basically, uh, the language is, first of all, God is posited as a plural being, okay? And so God has created human creatures in God's image. So it takes out gender, okay? So it kind of eradicates gender. Mm -hmm. Um, It also suggests in that same story of creation that God creates all the things of the world, you know, the universe and the 
but it doesn't necessarily say human, you know, in God's image. Okay. okay. But it does say that God creates those. So then you could pause it. Okay. So say we find an extraterrestrial, um, which by the way, we also do a lot of uh, projection onto, you know, we, we anthropomorphize. Yes. If you look at, you know, the greys or the Nordics and things like that, we also anthropomorphize these mm-hmm. beings. So we tend to do that. That's something that we do. We anthropomorphize animals, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, um, blues clues. And, you know, if you have kids, you know, you're aware of all this anthropomorphic, you know, kids TV shows and things like that. Um, so it's kind of our, our tendency to do that. Um, so I would suggest that if you're taking the beings like a rival, you know, uh, a movie producer has to in some way show an alien being in order to, or maybe not, but in order to create a movie mm-hmm. to, you know, okay. So what are these things that we are then in contact with if we're in contact with these alien beings? Um, yes, I think that we do actually anthropomorphize those. And, um, and in fact, I'm writing an essay right now about that, the anthropomorphizing of extraterrestrials and aliens and, you know, what we call non-human intelligences. Uh, it's my opinion that if we, if they exist, or if we do find non-human intelligence, um, it, it's probably already interacting with us. We probably don't recognize it. It's so incredibly alien that we just don't recognize it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. It, because it doesn't look like what we've been trained to understand it to look like. I mean, all of us alive today have been inundated with media, you know, that tells us what aliens look like. You know? So, so me saying that God created man in his image is maybe uh, not, not an exact translation of the story right? And it's interesting, because I wanted to mention that later, when, when I bring up Jung, and how his collected works were translated from German, and some people, some of his detractors nitpicked the words that he used. And sometimes I wonder, did he really choose that one word? Or is that the word that the translator chose? Because I interviewed the editor and co-translator of the Red Book and the Black Books, uh, Professor Sonu Shamdasani at University College London. And he mentioned that the the lead translator of Jung's collected works was uh, kind of different and that they discovered lots of errors in the translation. So sometimes I wonder about that. Yes, I mean, I think that's a huge uh, correction that needs to happen. It happens in religious studies departments when mm-hmm. we teach basic religious studies. We basically, you know, take, and I do that a lot. I, I and especially with the work, the the work in the um, what I call these contact events mm-hmm. that happen. I go back to the original and I read it in whatever language it is. If I don't if that language isn't my own, I surely know somebody in my field who knows that language. So I asked them to help me out. And so we go back and forth and um, we look at it and you can see that the, the biblical translations, you know, when first they were translated 
from the Greek into Latin, and a lot was lost there. But then the Latin was translated into different vernacular languages like English Mm -hmm. and French, and lots was lost there. So we've got, you know, what version, like the second version and the third version translations. And uh, yeah, so people lost their original gender. You know, a lot of things happened. (laughs) There were more apostles and, you know, I mean, there were a lot of things that changed. Well, going back to my original question about how the I'm not saying that disclosure is inevitable, because I sometimes fear that I will die still not knowing the truth, uh, if there is a truth, about the existence of extraterrestrials uh, and their presence here on Earth. And so, as I said, some people think that that disclosure is coming any day now. Some people have said in the community that it's currently underway. I just don't know. But I do wonder and worry about how it will be received. And because of the field that I'm involved in, in Jungian psychology, I don't know if I believe or feel that the general public is ready for it or will accept it, and whether or not it will destroy civilization as we know it. So I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that you you thought that Catholicism was open to it. And there are there are certainly other religions. And I know and have become very close to over the past 1011 years, a group of Tibetan Buddhist monks who are on tour here in the United States, and they've since gone back to their monastery in South India. It's actually the Dalai Lama's home monastery in South India. Um, it's Drepung Losling. And I keep in touch with them, and we talk on Skype, and I've often pressed them to tell me what they believe about the existence of extraterrestrials. And, you know, there there's a lot about their practice that they won't share with me, despite knowing me, uh, because I'm not, I'm not a Tibetan Buddhist, you know, I'm not, I haven't taken those vows, and and there's still secrecy, and I totally respect that. But I could see them accepting it and being ready for it. But my, just to say my sister-in-law, or my next door neighbor, no, no way. I, 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 don't believe that we as a society, despite Star Wars and Resident Alien and all of the media were being fed, uh, I don't think that we could handle it psychologically. Psychologically. Uh, And I would love to hear more about your work with technology, because the subtitle of your book is UFOs, Religion, Technology. So how does technology factor into this? Sure. So the technologies that I focus on in my book, American Cosmic, are media technologies. Mm -hmm. And what I found in my work while I was actually uh, worked on The Conjuring, which is a a haunted house movie. Yeah. Um, But what was interesting to me 
was the processes of, you know, it's about the supernatural and, and it's posited on true events, quote unquote. And so I was really interested in this true event side. I've always been interested in, in how something's, you know, that could be posited as true. And we go into the movie knowing that most likely it's not yet somehow we come out like not just entertained, but also in certain respects, believing even despite our best efforts. Wait, so let me just jump in there. So you mean like if we're told ahead of time, this is based on a true story, you still think people go in, go into it thinking that it's not, not really factual? Oh, definitely. I think we think it's basically spin, right? Okay. To sell the movie. Oh, I, okay. I, I think that people, you know, have some credit, you know, they're, credulous and yeah. they, can say, they can say, well, you know, we get manipulated by the media all the time. Okay. Uh, so there, you know, there are these, uh, I mean, we have deep fakes now, you know, we have like technology is, is basically help blur what used to be called fact from fiction, mm-hmm. but the, it just, the, we live in a different world now where we can't tell the difference. And so um, my emphasis on this, idea of how visual representations and especially those accompanied as you know given to us as stories and things like that based on true events um really really helps this bolster this belief in ufos and that's what i was basically saying i was using this belief system of ufos which has different types of beliefs within it even like different categories within Mm -hmm. it um, you know, because people believe in UFOs in a variety of different ways. Uh, how, you know, how, I agree with Carl Jung in the sense that this is the creation of a new mythology, a new way of, of looking at the world, a new religion really is what I'm saying in my book, a new form of religion, not a new religion, but because there are UFO religions, but a new form of religion. And it's based on this pervasive use of technology that blurs the distinctions between fact and fiction. So we see a documentary and it's, you know, suppose, well, okay, I, I'm going to take an example from mm-hmm. that I know of actually. Um, I know a movie producer named Dean Alioto and he produced, you probably have seen this, it's Alien Abduction. It, it, I mean, I think it came out like about 15 years ago or something. And so what he did was he was wanted- it, Wait, was it a, a movie or a television program? It was a it was a short movie basically about um, an alien abduction, okay. and he he wanted to create an alien abduction. Like if if an alien abduction happened, <clears throat> what would it look like? Okay. So he's a very talented movie producer, and he created it full fully, you know, being honest and saying this is just a creation, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not any kind of real alien abduction, of course. Well, it was perceived by audiences as real. And then it, it went viral. If you could say that back 15 years ago, it went viral. Um, Jacques Vallée witnessed it. And, and I remember asking him about it. And he said, oh, yeah, this was something that was ironic. You know, and he had witnessed the whole thing. He witnessed the movie producer um, talking about it, the premiere of it, people actually believing it was real while the movie producer Dean saying, no, it's not actually real. And then how people to- think people think that that he filmed a real alien abduction? Yes. Oh, yes. I missed yes. all that. I did yeah. not see that. 
Yeah. That's so interesting. So, you know, even after The Conjuring, um, I was invited onto Catholic radio and millions of people were listening and they were listening because they believed in the accounts of what happened in The Conjuring. And they thought even the movie itself could actually bring the supernatural to life. And so I was being asked uh, on Catholic radio Mm -hmm. whether or not the supernatural could you know was being brought to life through these types of movies and whether or not we should actually attend them well i couldn't really answer that because Mm -hmm. i (laughs) you know so but yeah so i so that's how i focus on media technologies and technology in general uh that was a very specific way of looking at it and i use a lot of cognitive science of um basically cognitive science of film and cognitive science of media to discuss how these kinds of things bypass rational thought, go directly to parts of our brains that then um, basically believe in these things, so despite, we, despite us knowing that they're not, say, true. Just by us knowing that they're not true. Or maybe even questioning whether or not they're true, like uh, the Da Vinci Code, for mm-hmm. example, right? The Da Vinci Code. Okay, so Jesus being married to Mary and things like that. Well, a lot of my students would then, after that movie was out, come to class and say, no, no, I believe it. And I said, well, we don't really have any evidence for that. And, you know, we, I'm not saying he wasn't, but I don't think he was, you know, so we don't have evidence to show that he was. And so without any kind of evidence, though, they were buying into the movie. My question is always the first, my first thought is always who is behind this? What is behind this? There is a they creating this technology. Oh, I could tell you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's what I did during the conjuring because I had the same question, like Mm -hmm. who does this and why? And so my question was synchronistically answered um, because I had written that one of my first published articles is actually about the Blair Witch Project, which was the found footage, you know, kind of haunting movie. Um, And the, 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 it was graduate students who did this movie and they basically knew, you know, they were very self-consciously creating this found footage documentary style film that wasn't true, but they weren't coming out and saying it wasn't true. And I was actually part of, I was targeted because I was a grad student at the time by their stealth advertising campaign, which basically they weren't advertising uh, in the traditional ways. They were actually going through email and things like that. This is kind of before the iPhone was big. And so, you know, friends of mine and, and uh, my friends and I would get these emails and we would just be like, what's, what's this? You know, we got to see this. And there were lines. We had to wait in lines to get tickets. In fact, we didn't get tickets the first day that the movie was out. It was uh, tested in, I mean, I lived in California, so it was tested in Berkeley Mm -hmm. and, you know, they, and we were the audience, you know, these grad students. So um, they targeted us and there we were all lining up to go see it. And so this found footage and this idea of, this edge of reality, you know, is it real? Is it not real? Uh, they weren't the, the directors and producers and creators of the movie weren't coming out and saying it was true or, or it was not true. Mm-hmm. And that movie just, I mean, it was a, a small budget and it made millions and millions of dollars. And so what happened was I then thought of that who, you know, okay, let's, let's tease out the strategies that and techniques that they use in order right. to create this type of belief. Okay. So, I did that in the first 
in that first essay. And then after that, I still had questions and I knew that I could get deeper. And then I was asked, I got a phone call and we have a movie production studio here. It's called Hollywood East actually where I live. Mm-hmm. And so we have a movie movie studio and they needed, they weren't telling me a lot, but they said, we need someone who can help us with the Latin for this text. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go on set. They need someone who can help them with Latin. This is a film about exorcism. I'm, I'm going to do it. And I know why I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I'm going to learn what, you know, what they're doing and mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. And so it's all about, for Hollywood, it's all about money. So if they can, and they're very explicit about it. So my next article called The Fairy Tale is True is, is basically um, recounting what I learned through that experience. And I use a lot of scholarship to kind of, you know, in media studies, like uh, Jeffrey Zachs wrote a great book, I think it's called Your Brain on Movies. Um, And it's great, because basically, he also teased out the very specific techniques that are being used in order to create these types of, like, fake documentaries, because, Mm -hmm. you know, the genre of the documentary is that it is, you know, documents something that's real, right? Mm -hmm. But what if it doesn't? And then uh, how does that change our belief or how does that mess with our beliefs is that what I should say because it it does um and so I give a lot of examples of that in my book and in that article it talks about how movie producers then go through I think they go to UC Irvine that has a department now I could be wrong so uh but I believe that's where it's at um where they actually do testing of audiences and what they do is they they hook up the audience's brains to these like EKG uh, devices and they determine which, you know, when, when, when does the, which scenes produce the most uh, arousal in the Mm -hmm. brain. Okay. And they keep those scenes. Okay. So it's kind of this editing process with using this type of, you know, research. And so we get, when we go to a movie now, or when we see a video game, or when we consume media, I mean, we, our brains are being completely, uh, you know, aroused in various different ways, you know, dopamine and this and that. And so, um, yeah, so that's what I learned. And, and it has to do with Mm. selling movies and selling products. So it's not necessarily nefarious. Um, It becomes nefarious, but it's not like, I mean, I, th- I do think that is actually used today um, nefariously, uh, but the movie producers are probably the ones who started it and they only were trying to make a lot of money. A few things. Uh, you mentioned two of your articles and I just want to tell the listeners that all of your papers are available online to download in PDF form. I will have links to uh, Dr. Pasolka's academia.edu page in the show notes for this episode. And secondly, I uh, I was a psychology major in college at the University of Washington, and I studied experimental psychology before I switched majors to neuropsychology, and I transferred to a small Jesuit university in Cleveland called John Carroll University. But I then worked at University Hospitals of Cleveland, and we I worked in, in nuclear medicine where we did PET scans of brains. So I'm familiar with all of that. And I made a conscious decision to leave that field. I didn't like the exclusion of, oh, of the things that I talk about on this podcast. But 
what I'm still wondering, and you did a great job of explaining what's going on there. And you say that the motivation is money, but I'm still wondering what would possess someone to want to do that and create that. I, uh, I don't understand what's happening psychologically, um, the, 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 the motivation to do that. And you mentioned a new form of religion, and I don't want to skip over that because I find that really interesting. And it goes back to my initial question of how would proof of extraterrestrial or non-human intelligent life, how would that affect our religious beliefs? But you're talking about a new form of religion and, and that being, and UFOs being a new form of religion. And I guess I don't understand how that would be or could be a religion. So let's talk about with you being a religious studies professor, what is a religion? Yes. Okay. I was just about to say, then let's discuss the category of religion. In, you know, one of the mistakes that we make here in the West is we tend to also think that religions look like what we practiced as kids, right? Mm -hmm. So they look like these uh, monotheistic Western religions of Judaism, Islam, Christianity. And so we tend to assume that they have these elements to them, like they have a God and they have, you know, these afterlife places and we are called to do good works and these kinds of things. Okay. Well, okay. Um, That's one category of religion, but it doesn't encompass what religion is because then you have like, you know, Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, you know, which definitely doesn't posit a God and, mm-hmm. um, you know, doesn't actually think that, you know, it, it posits non-reality, which is sunyata mm-hmm. and things like this. So, you know, how are then those religions? So that's, those are questions that, that help us understand that religion is a category that we use as, as in order to identify how cultures determine what's most valuable to them and what they believe, how we should conduct our lives and things like that. So I generally use John Livingston's definition of religion, um, which is a very, it's an excellent definition because it allows us then to then say, okay, well, we can't say, oh, Buddhism is not a religion. It doesn't have a God, you know, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So people tend to think of religions in certain ways. And I'd like to tell your audience, which probably already knows this, because I assume that people that are listening to a podcast on Jung, you know, that uh, would would already have thought about this. Um, But the general population, students I get into my classes, they have ideas about religion that are already formed. And I have to break those down, okay? Mm -hmm. So I break those down by using examples like, okay, there is a religion called Jediism, and it's actually a religion of a, fi- <laughs> a fiction. It's a religion of Star Wars. Okay? okay, and people actually, it this is a religion. Okay, people practice it. I've met people who are Jedi's, and you know they take the religion very seriously. So then we ask in the class, you know, is it a religion? Do, you know, does it conform to these kinds of things? And right. what is religion? If that can be a religion, if things based on fiction can be a religion. So what is religion? Um, so this is what I like to define religion as uh, the beliefs and practices directed toward that, which a person perceives to be of transformative 
nature or transformative value. So like ultimate and transformative value. Okay. So you can take then Buddhism and say that's a religion because one of the, I mean, for want of a better word, the goal of Buddhism Mm -hmm. is what to be awake is to wake up right to the reality of our conditionedness, right? Our, our programmedness and then to be awake to that. So we can then say that that is the ultimate transformative, that the value is to be awake and the transformation is doing, you know, the noble truths is doing the practices, the eightfold path on and the noble truths. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So if then that's religion, how do we have this religions are determined a lot by infrastructure. And when I say that, let's, let's go back to purgatory. Okay. So that doctrine was created by this practice of people going into places, these caves. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what is that, but an infrastructure, right? So that's, that's a material reality. So in the nineties, when I was a grad student and um, in the Bay area, I was surrounded by the changing technologies, right? And the dot-com boom and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I was like, wow, you know, it was really easy to get a job doing any kind of technology and make, you know, we could make a lot of money doing that. Um, And I realized that technology uh, was the game changer here. It was changing our infrastructure. In California, it was very obvious. So it's now been imported all over the world. And not just that, but COVID has forced us to all be in, I mean, look at us right now, right? Right. We're we're talking to your audience through our phone or through our computer, through these screens. Mm -hmm. So screen culture now dominates. Okay, if screen culture dominates, how is that going to impact religion? Well, it's creating this new form of religion because the UFO is not just a representative of technology. It is technology to a lot of people. It's called advanced technology, Mm -hmm. right? And so a lot of scientists believe in it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also this, this per potential realism to it. I mean, NASA every two years or so, basically, you know, the chief scientists will, will do a, a press release and say, we will find life, you know, it will be soon. We have the technology yeah. we have, you know, and so, I mean, so there's a realism there for this non-human, uh, life elsewhere that, religions tend to have religions tend to have this belief you know people believe in jesus and that he is the son of god they believe that people believe uh that muhammad what is the prophet that kind of thing right so there there are these beliefs in these that these claims are not just claims but they're truth claims and so the ufo quote-unquote type of religion religiosity is what i call it um is this this new form of, of um, non-human life that we then, you know, associate with lots of different things like, you know, advanced technologies and things like that. Perhaps they're good, perhaps they're bad. We don't know because, you know, we, we tend to do that to our non-human intelligences in other religions too. We say, oh, demons are bad, angels are good kind of thing. We, we make those same projections. So here we are in you know, the 21st century, we have a new infrastructure, we have a new material reality, and it's virtual. Well, what are our beliefs? And how do they so the UFO belief is also one that can actually accompany a religious belief. I know lots of people who are religious, but also 
believe in, in non-human intelligent extraterrestrial life. You, you say in the book that religions work because practitioners believe in their truth or truths, even without overt evidence to support them. Religious truth, practitioners point out, exists independent of belief or disbelief. Yes, they do believe that. I'm not fully understanding how UFOs could be considered a religion. Because to me, I don't know. I just don't liken the two at all. And I'm very interested now in Jeffrey Kripal. I know that Whitley Strieber has had him on Dreamland many times. I have heard interviews with him. I don't recall him saying that he, and you say he still believes that that if UFOs are deemed to be real and that we are being visited by non-human intelligence, that it would disrupt our world. It would disrupt religious belief, definitely. Yeah, he thinks that. I mean, if we can look at uh, the nation of Islam. So this is a religion that was founded by uh, a person who had an experience of what he called mothership, which was a UFO. So there are many religions that emerge from these events that people see in UFOs and then people, you know, they're, they're called UFO religions. Um, so what I'm saying is now we're moving on from the UFO religion uh-huh. to a form of belief that is religious-like because people become, mm. you know, it determines their mm-hmm. worldviews, mm-hmm. right? It determines what they believe in humanity as like part of this cosmos and, you know, or what is our place within the universe and things like that. So it, it really changes their perspective which religions do, they're meant to kind of frame our perspective of the cosmos, right? And, and our cosmology. And so that definitely happens with people who experience events, UFO events. I'm still very interested in the way that UFOs are perceived by the general public. I can only speak about here in the United States, because that's where I am. And for me, it, well, it's it's been part of my world for so long. And as everyone knows, it, and there's been such a proliferation of movies and television shows. And even during the Super Bowl, this couple months ago, there were so many commercials that included aliens and UFOs. I mean, one right after another. So it's definitely part of our culture. But Whenever I uh, mention UFOs on this podcast or in my social media, I'm on social media to promote this podcast. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And it just doesn't, those, those posts, that content just doesn't seem to get the amount of attention that the non-UFO posts get. And I, I still wonder, are UFOs still kind of ridiculed or looked down on? So I'm curious as to what your experience has been in the world of academia since publishing this book, American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, Technology. Okay, so how, yeah. So the question is, um, how 
are UFOs perceived today? They were definitely stigmatized, absolutely, of course, uh, on purpose. There, it was per- it, there were programs, governmental programs, that purposely set out to debunk uh, UFO accounts by people, by citizens of the United States. This is just fact. Okay, so it was a, sec- a successful program. Um, however, what's happening now? Yeah. Um, okay, so knowing that this is the case, knowing that it could ding my credibility as a professor, but actually not caring at this point, mm-hmm. um, I went ahead and decided to write this book. Uh, I was very surprised by what I found. I didn't expect to find what I found, but I, I'm happy I did. But um, I, I also decided and strategized that it would have to be published by a pretty well-known academic press right. in order to keep it on the up and up, right? And, yeah. and credible, which I did. And I went with Oxford because that I've been publishing with them and they're great. Um, okay. So what happened then afterwards? So, so well, first off, I think the, <laughs> I mean, I opened my book by stating that people have stigmatized this, but I haven't, I've not met in my research more credible, credentialed and successful people Yes. Than I have in this research. And yes. I just had to say that right off the bat because mm-hmm. that's absolutely the truth. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I begin the research, like almost immediately, uh, my research territory um, changed. So generally, my research territory would be, you know, people who are religious and, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know theologians and, you know, other people in religious studies, right. uh, you know, kind of things that I deem to be appropriate to my work. Mm -hmm. Well, my work changed significantly. And it wasn't just people who said they had experienced UFO events that came into my sphere, but um, people who were associated with the government and people who were highly credentialed people, uh, wealthy people, billionaires. I've never met so many billionaires in my life. They all want to reverse engineer what they think is alien technology. (laughs) You know, I mean, so, you know, and they have the means to perhaps do that if there is alien technology. So, um, yeah, so that was shocking to me. But also, I think that, you know, I said it in the book, I said, this is the case. Now, after saying that, I was invited to a lot of prestigious um, institutions to give talks. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of people are taking it very seriously. Mm-hmm. That's what I would imagine. And that's why I am always surprised at the, what did you, you use the word stigmatized? Yes. UFOs? This, uh-huh, that, yeah. that, that that's still happening. And I think still after all this time, and then Robert Bigelow coming out on 60 Minutes talking about, well, I don't care what people think of my admission for what I believe or what I know to be true. So, and as you mentioned, these are millionaires and billionaires. And it's like, I studied astrology uh, formally uh, for many years. And the the saying in, in the field is that millionaires don't use astrology, billionaires do. <laughs> right? So, the fact that UFOs are still stigmatized and people still, it still makes people uncomfortable is, is, is very surprising to me and very disappointing. And so I want to commend you for writing this book and for being so open and so honest about it and for 
um, for getting into everything that you get into in this book. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's fascinating. And I would like to continue to, um, mention some of the main themes here. And I'm, I'm probably going to be jumping around because my notes are a bit of a mess. Uh, but you do talk about synchronicity in this book. And that has been a very large area of confusion, I will say, in the not only the field of Jungian psychology, because I've had many Jungian analysts tell me that it is a very difficult concept. It's difficult to understand. And Jung's essay on synchronicity, it's titled On Synchronicity, is difficult to understand. And, and to me, I think that where the difficulty comes in is in, in, if you don't take into account Jung's relationship with Wolfgang Pauli and the work that they did together, then you'll never understand synchronicity. But Dr. Pasolka, you in the book give what I think is a great definition of synchronicity. And you say synchronicity as defined by Carl Jung is the coming together of inner and outer events that are not causally linked, but are very meaningful to those who have the experience. And I'd like for you to tell us what you were told about synchronicity, because I've not heard any Jungian analyst mention this before. You call it synchronicity fatigue. Yes. What? Please. I love this part of the book. Please tell us what you mean by that. Okay. Um, when when this is how I think of it now, I mm -hmm. hope that's okay because sure. my uh, my ideas change over time. Yeah. And I experienced synchronicity fatigue a few times in my life, and during each time, it was a time of intense either intense research or intense meditation and prayer or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. Okay. And so what I believe, I remember experiencing it in my twenties um, and it was in college. And I felt that there were so many things that were coincidences, right? I didn't yeah. understand. I didn't know about synchronicity at that time. There were so many things that were coincidences that were happening like rapid fire one after the other. And okay. it, it almost seemed as my experience of it was that the universe was speaking to me in events and through people and people probably didn't, weren't even aware of it. And it was, it was pretty disconcerting. And so I decided I was, I would hold, <laughs> I would stop doing the prayer and meditation. And so I did. And the synchronicities and those coincidences faded out and I really? went back into, yeah. So I had that experience as, as a younger person. And then I went into graduate school and I read about these things, synchronicities and things like that. And then during this research, synchronicities were so were happening again so rapid fire yeah, I'm sure. that I, I, and thankfully though I had friends to whom this was happening as well. Mm -hmm. So I had a um, in Buddhism you call it the the community, right? The sangha community. Yeah, and that, and I realized then that you actually need a community of like minded people in order to do this type of work because mm -hmm. when you start to take away your perceptions of what the world is about and you start to actually experience what the world is that these 
these kinds of events, the inner meeting, the outer happen all the time. Yeah. And that if you're committed to the former reality in which you lived, it could throw you off. Right. And so you need people around you. And so I remember being at one of these conferences um, at Esalen and I just admitted, I said, I'm having synchronicity fatigue. And that's the first <laughs> time I said it. Right. And everybody laughed just like you just laughed. Yeah. They said, yeah. Oh, ha, we understand. Right. 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 <laughs> and cause they were having it too. Mm. So once we got that over with, um, I have a friend, sister Rose, uh, she's a Catholic sister. She's an Ursuline sister. And I worked, I've worked with her for about 15 years now. And so she, she lives in that world of, of, of synchronicity. She doesn't live in my kind of, you know, world where I'm, I have a foot in both worlds. Right. right. So right. She, sometimes I tell her something and I say, look at this sister Rose. Is this not strange? And she says, <laughs> no, Diana, that's, that's not how you should look at it. It's mm -hmm. actually the other way that's strange. Yeah. You know, and so, um, so I have a lot more of an understanding experientially, I guess you could call it now about uh, synchronicity than I had prior to first writing this book. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the book, you mentioned that synchronicity unveils something about reality that we need to understand. It is the way our reality is structured. And it goes on all, I believe it goes on all the time but we just don't notice it. Jung believed he didn't think mind and matter were fundamentally two separate things. And he talks about the psychoid archetype and the word psychoid means psyche-like. It was his attempt to, to say, if you follow the psyche all the way down, that the psyche is influencing the material world and vice versa. And that, that matter has some psychological-like properties and the psyche actually has substance in the world. And that is where the inner and the outer come into play and are necessary for the, the technical word synchronicity. And, and I had a blogger actually, he got so upset with me. I did an episode with Mike Cleland, who is actually a, a, a mutual friend of ours. He's how you and I connected. He's and a synchronicity guy. He is, he is the <laughs> yeah. synchronicity guy. So Mike Cleland invited me to do uh, an episode of his podcast, The Unseen. And then I asked him to do a quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung, like we're doing right now. And I knew that Mike had a lot of material that he wanted to, to go into. And so I invited a Jungian analyst here in Chicago to join us, uh, Dr. Kenneth James, who's also a professor. And we looked at synchronicity Jung's original concept of it. And he, Dr. James pointed out how synchronicity is not always used cor correctly in the, the everyday vernacular. And this blogger listened to that episode we did and got so upset and so offended that, that he didn't want to be told that he was using the word incorrectly and that we were assholes and just, it, it, I, I was, I was kind of stunned. I guess not everybody is interested in in the facts and in the sources and and so it, it it's used 
The term is used kind of incorrectly out there, but I love how in American Cosmic, it's actually on page 111, you say that synchronicity is not such a big deal. And in fact, if you're doing things correctly, I think maybe somebody told you this, if you're doing things correctly, it is how the world functions. And then you quote Jung, you know, saying that synchronicity is an ever-present reality for those with eyes to see. Yes. So that, again, is in Dr. Pasolka's book, American Cosmic, on page 111. And speaking of synchronicity, I wanted to mention something else to you on this show, because you talk about the movie 2001 in the book, and I think the biggest synchronicity of my life happened involving the movie 2001. Wow, that's just, really, that's great. That's <laughs> such a great movie to have a synchronicity about. <laughs> well, that now that movie, I have to say, um, because I was, you know, as much as I'm interested in Jungian psychology and in the UFO community, I was trained as a scientist. And so, and you talk about having a foot in both worlds. I still, my, my, my initial reaction is always to look at things concretely, concretely, as opposed to symbolically. So that movie 2001 was, I I just recently rewatched it, but that is a very difficult movie for me to understand. Um, What happened was Jung, I'm sure you've heard of the Red Book. Yes. Jung's Red Book. So that was released in 2009. And it was followed up by the Black Books, which were just released in October of last year. And the editor, uh, Professor Sonusham Dasani, who I mentioned earlier over at University College London, he agreed to do an episode of Speaking of Jung with me. Uh, He edited the Red Book and he co-translated. Well, the Red Book was written by Jung. um, It was taken from Jung's black books. He had a a six volume set of these black leather bound books that were where he recorded his dreams and his visions and his active imaginations. And then the red book was taken from the Jung did it himself took took entries from the black books and wrote them in calligraphy in the red book and painted these beautiful um, paintings that he did. He's an artist. So anyway, the Red Book was a huge success. And the foundation decided to publish the Black Books as a seven volume slipcase edition, the set. So when I was preparing to do the episode with Professor Shamdasani, uh, we were exchanging emails, and they had just finally released a photo of the, the the set of books. And it's a tall black, very tall black uh, material. It's covered with like a black linen. And all of the book covers, they're hardcover books that are black linen and gold lettering. And he told me that in, in the email exchange that he envisioned the monolith from 2001. And I was stunned that he would reference that. I mean, he, he's this he's a scholar, you know, he's a, a professor <laughs> of Jung history. I just had to pause there for a minute because I was so shocked. That's so uh, shocking. You and me both. And I just <laughs> was absolutely stunned that, that, and also we don't, you know, we don't know each other. He was, 
I had interviewed a, a woman, Ann Casement, who's very good friends with him. And, and so she actually probably talked him into doing my show. Uh, and, and for him to, to, I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story for him to, uh, I've been telling it for him to admit that to me, somebody doesn't even know in email. Well, that sparked this whole big thing. So that was in the very beginning of October last year. He mentions the monolith in 2001. So of course, I take off with that. And and I, I have posted lots of photos of the black books on social media. And now of course, I'm seeing monolith everywhere. What happened about a month later in November, that monolith showed up in the Utah desert. Did you hear about those? I did. Yes. I was well, totally following the whole thing. I thought yeah. it was hilarious. I still don't know. I don't think we still know the source. I know that an art group from New Mexico claimed ownership, but that was debunked from what I understand. Wow. But but what happened was, so I took off with this theme and I found on YouTube, which then I later heard you mention this, now his name escapes me. The gentleman on YouTube that explained. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I think his name is Ayer, A-Y-E-R or A-J-E-R. Okay. And his website is collative or collative, however you want to pronounce it, learning. And he does film analyses. Is that the person? Yes. Yeah. He's got excellent film analyses. <laughs> I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes, but I heard you mention that um, because when when you had agreed to do this episode with me, what I do to prepare for a guest is I listen to all the other interviews that I can find that they've done. And I heard you mention that. And I was stunned because I thought she listened to that too. And you tell people what you, well, what he said and what you say the monolith is. Yes. So <laughs> he, of course, his analysis is that it's the screen. And actually, since I've been doing the podcasts after the, the American Cosmic came out, mm -hmm. people have actually said that he wasn't the first. I guess there were some other people okay. who identified it as the screen as well. Um, but I didn't find them. So I cited him and his mm -hmm. work. Um, but I thought his analysis was excellent that yeah. it's basically like the iPhone is the screen. And that he makes an excellent case for it. So I believe him. Um, however, I also believe that um, it's also, you know, he doesn't go the, the alien tech way. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't believe in that. But it's not mutually exclusive. Like you can believe it's the screen and alien tech. Okay. Because okay. I right now, I think that if there is anything alien, it's it's... Involve, it involves this technology that yes, we're using. I think so too. I think so too. And so what I likened it to, and I'm just looking at my iPhone right now because you know how the, the iPhones come in different colors. I always get black. Well, I love black. I only wear black actually, <laughs> but I always get the plus. So it's very large. I always get it in black and then I have it in a black case. So it looks you Just, have a little monolith that you carry around. Exactly. <laughs> and then I also have two iPads. They're both black in black cases. And then I recently got, uh, my sister-in-law was, was she kept saying, you've got to get a Keurig. You've got to get a Keurig. I don't want a Keurig. I like to do the pour over when I make coffee. 
And that's another thing we probably won't get to, Italian coffee. There is nothing, (laughs) nothing better. I will fly to Rome just because I'm craving Italian coffee. I think it's also the cream. It's amazing. It's just amazing. I was so disappointed in coffee. I was depressed when I got back to the United States. (laughs) You you can't duplicate it. So kind of like New York pizza. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so back to the monolith. So um, I have no idea where I was going with that. The iPads, the iPhone. Your sister-in-law. Um, my sister-in-law said, get a Keurig. Thank you. And so I thought, well, I don't have a lot of room on my counter. So I get the single serve slim, of course, in black. And I was looking at it the other day and I thought, there's another monolith. It looks like the monolith. So about, um, as I said, about a month after the black books were released on October 13th, 2020, in November of 2020, the first monolith showed up in Utah. And so I did, uh, I was on Richard C. Hoagland's uh, weekend late night radio show, The Other Side of Midnight. He just went nuts. He he was all over that. And then another monolith showed up and another monolith showed up. Do you know, do, do you have any inside information on the source of those? No, I don't. But I think that I just don't know. I know. Okay. okay. When they showed up, I was, I thought it was a great joke, right? I was like, this is just wonderful (laughs) (laughs) because it's, you know, in in a sense it's happening at the same time as COVID. So it it happens when we become absolutely Mm. forced to be in the screen. You know, there's no coincidence there. I mean, maybe it is a coincidence, but it it shouldn't be, it it should, let's put it this way. It seems pretty strange <laughs> because the I, of it. Yeah. yeah, the timing of it. I mean, here I f- have been saying to friends, colleagues, students, you know, who listen, you know, hey, the COVID is actually our initiation into mm. absolutely on a global scale, the infrastructure, mm. the alien inf- infrastructure. And, you know, it's we're here we are, you know, accessing the mo- yeah, everything through the monolith basically right and then we get the these like you know monoliths as a joke almost saying haha we got you kind of thing that's how i viewed it but um i know other people just view it as kind of random <laughs> oh gosh i don't think it could be random um so professor shamdasani is he's an, an historian who looks at how psychologies are formed and he said that the black books, this seven volume slipcase set, are a window into Jung's creative process. They show how a psychology was born. And so that, I thought that was very interesting and very relevant. Um, you Because you say that and then you, you do talk about the monolith in American Cosmic on page 117. Uh, and you're, you're talking about James. Um, you said, according to James, a fan of science fiction and of the original book by Arthur C. Clarke, on which the movie 2001 was based, the monolith is a donation, supposedly from a more advanced species, but its meaning remains mysterious. And that is something else that I don't want to forget to talk about when I ha- while I have you here is the strategy, you call it, of not concluding. Not concluding yes. 
but understanding. And that is so important. I was wondering if you would say a few words about that. I mean, I think that in if we, it's again, I think that there is a Buddhist meditation or exercise in which you you say, who am I, right? And then you keep asking and you say, well, am I this? Am I that? No, no, no. And you keep going and it actually never ends. So you can never actually get to who you, who mm-hmm. you are or what you are. Okay. I think that, that what I found in both Tyler and James in my book, uh, pseudonyms for people who are incredibly intelligent scientists, mm-hmm. they, would not conclude. In fact, Jacques Vallée does this as well. He doesn't make any of these conclusions. Well, these are extraterrestrials. They're from this planet or something. You know, let's let's look at this. And but they keep an open mind. Uh, but they do research. And the more research they do, the more data they have, and the more they kind of put pieces together. And the bigger the picture becomes, right? They get a bigger picture of it. And but the the method that guides them, you know. It would be great if they could conclude, but they can't <laughs> because it's too mysterious. You know, it's the question that, and I always use Martin Heidegger. I know a lot of people don't like him, and, <laughs> but I always go back to him because he always brings it back up. He says, philosophy has lost its way. You know, it fails to ask the question, why something rather than nothing? Like, you know, the question of, wow, we're here. Mm-hmm. How? Why? And I think that's kind of a fundamental question in every um, you know, in the big, in the fields in which we ask the big questions, like, you know, these kinds of the science of material reality or something like that. Right. So I think that it's a methodology and most likely um, I, I admired it in James and Tyler. Yeah. I think it's an honest methodology. Truthfully. Yeah. Yep. And you mentioned Martin Heidegger. Uh, there always seems to be a connection between episodes and I don't, schedule them on purpose. They just happen naturally. For instance, last week, my guest was the Jungian analyst John Ryan Huell. And we talked about his book on St. Francis. It's called The Ecstasies of St. Francis. And he was looking at the life of Francis uh, from a psychological pr- perspective. He was looking at his narcissism and how he used his narcissism. And I was like, what? St. Francis and narcissism? He used his narcissism as a, a way of transformation. Um, but th- the reason why I mention him is because his dissertation, his 400 page dissertation was on Jung and Martin Heidegger. That's very interesting. And I also find it super interesting that St. Francis used narcissism as a transformative process. Um, I wish narcissists were able to do that. Yes. Well, I, I was I was uh, very happy that Dr. Huell uh, agreed to talk about that book because it was a, a smaller book, a, an older book. It was one of his early works, and he's written some major tomes since then. And I asked him if he would focus on that book for that episode. He's agreed to come back to do uh, other episodes about his other books. But that is episode 82 of Speaking of Young. That's available to stream or download for free from the website. And um, I I would like to encourage everyone to have a listen. Um, it's very interesting. And we also talked about St. Francis receiving the stigmata. Uh, and I wanted to mention this earlier when we were talking about angels, because there is... Um, 
I've been visiting Santa Fe and and New Mexico regularly since the mid '90s, and whenever um, in Santa Fe, usually stay in the center of town. There is the Cathedral of Saint Francis of Assisi, and there is a large, a larger than life statue. Have you been there? No, I haven't been there to see that. I've been in New Mexico, but I haven't been there. So there are a lot, I put a lot of photos. What I do with these episodes of Speaking of Young, uh, so many listeners asked me to, to upload them to YouTube, which I don't like to do because this is a podcast. It's just audio. It's not video. So I need to include something. Uh, and, and so I've made, when I upload these episodes to YouTube, I include photos and a photo of my guest and their book covers. And then any, any, any images that are related to the episode. So I had found all of the photos that I took back in 2010. I mean, I've, I've been to this cathedral many, many times. I've been to mass there, but I actually took a lot of photos of, there are several statues of St. St. Francis there. There's a big bronze one in the front, but if you go around to the side, to the right side of the cathedral, there is a big white marble statue of St. Francis showing the stigmata. His palms are up and he, you could see the stigmata in his palms. And I've included all the photos I took there um, in the YouTube uh, the slideshow that that is a, that accompanies episode eighty two, um, but what did I want to say? That's cool. I can't wait to see that. Yeah, and and I I have close ups, and then the sun was coming in, and it was shining on it, and uh, it it what did I want to say? Um, oh, the seraphim, the angels. So there, when I was searching around the web to include some of the artwork that would depict because the stigmata is just not is not just in the palms of the hands it's also in the feet and in the side right yeah there are different types of stigmata okay if you look at it within the catholic tradition different and and didn't yeah. saint catherine of siena receive the stigmata too gosh probably i don't know oh, i do a- know that there's uh let's see oh gosh herbert thurston is the Jesuit who did, it's called, the book is called Amazing or Surprising Mystics. Okay. And also he did um, the physical manifest. Oh, you might like this book, actually. You might like his work. Mm-hmm. It's Herbert Thurston. Okay. Uh, he did a really great book called the, um, the science, what is it called? Gosh, the, the science of the physical manifestation of mysticism, something along those oh, lines. Oh, cool. And it's uh, basically looking at mystics and saints who have stigmata and things like that. I love that. I'm not sure why I'm still exploring that because uh, St. Catherine of Siena is entombed in the altar at uh, the Santa Maria Sopra Minerva church that's like right behind uh, the Pantheon there in Rome. If you're looking at the Pantheon, over to the right behind it is my favorite church in the world that I've ever been to. And it looks like nothing on the outside. It's just very plain and you go inside and it's, it's like being in outer space. And it, it, I have a photo I'd like to share with you of, uh, someone took of me from behind. I'm, I'm at one of the side chapels looking at, uh, the annunciation 
and my feet are lit up. Oh, right. I think you did, did share I, that I with did me. send that to you. That was the, really interesting. <laughs> in the crazy email uh, <laughs> that I sent you telling you my whole life story. Yeah, so I don't know how I got there, but um, St. Francis, the stigmata, the seraphim, earlier when we were talking about angels, and I also don't want to neglect to to cover this a little bit uh, while I have you here. Uh, I noticed this when I was at the Vatican Museum of the things in the sky in these old paintings. Mm-hmm. I know I'm saying that very crudely, um, but... I think that's probably a good way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> when St. Francis is depicted as receiving the stigmata, it, it in some of the artwork that I included in the... Uh, in the slideshow for episode 82, it is a red seraphim multi-winged angel that is beaming something down to St. Francis that is causing these wounds, which he later dies from. Yes. So what, wh- why, why is what, however he received the stigmata, I mean, how, we don't know. It's depicted as an angel it could be a UFO. What's going on there? Yeah. I think the best thing for us to do is to retract our terms okay. and go back to what you said, this thing in the sky. Okay. So let's reach, because, you know, the, there's a lot of connotation that comes with calling it either a UFO or calling it a angel. Yeah. Because both of those terms are very specific terms that mean things. Uh, the Catholic Church calls it an angel. But if you go back to the earliest sources about it, um, and actually I did this when I first started to think about writing about UFOs, I thought, you know, I need to look at some of these weird things that happen in Catholicism, and the original sources, and then the representations of them in, in um, art, because the representation mm. doesn't actually look like the original source. Yeah. So the original source is so weird that you'd have to wonder how the artist was able to like, (laughs) you know, you read it and you're like, what's that? Um, I actually shared it with Tyler. uh, You know, the, the, what the, what, so, okay, let's put it this way. How does this get done? How does, how does an artist portray an angel? Okay. All right. Well, there are conventions, right? Artistic conventions of portrayal, but who did it first, right? That's the question. Who did it first and why? Mm -hmm. So you have usually some kind of contact event, like St. Francis's contact with this non-human intelligence that comes through the atmosphere in sparks and lights and then beams these things that look like rays, right? Mm-hmm. That you know, that's what they seem like, and they they're somewhat portrayed like that in the textual source. And they hurt him, you know. He's like hurt by these things. Yeah. And there's a there, and there seems to be some type of telepathy too that goes on between it and Francis. And then um, it there's an eye that comes out, right? And then the face. And then it gets retracted again. So, I mean, this is something very strange, right? And how are you going to represent that? Uh, well, because it happened to, Saint, to Francis, who wasn't a saint at the time, but it happens right, to, right. to Francis, who's a very well-known Catholic, um, you know, uh, throughout Italy. Then it gets interpreted. And so it goes through these, you know, levels of interpretation. Okay. I think if that happened today, people would interpret that as a UFO coming right. down and zapping this 
this holy guy, (laughs) you know, the, the holy, I guess now that we know he's a narcissist, the holy narcissist of the neighborhood. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's what, I mean, the same thing happens to not the same thing, but the same process happens. Mm -hmm. If you look at, uh, Teresa of Avila and her, what's called the ecstasy. Yeah. And there's the Bernini statue of it and it doesn't look anything. Yeah. It doesn't look anything like her autobiographical account of what happened to her. So, so the artistic it, representations mm-hmm. are they it's like the bible that gets retranslated there's a lot of skewing and redaction that goes on so was it cleaned up i mean from her original experience what yeah, what, it what looks, happens it, lo- there? it looks a lot better than yeah. the original experience yeah. <laughs> the bernini statue looks pretty okay right so this little angel looks like you know eros or uh, cupid yeah, Cupid, you know, it's it's kind of a cute little thing. Um, but that's not exactly how she, and in fact, it's not at all how she described it in her autobiography. And then her own editors actually edited a lot of what she said about it. Uh, in fact, they edited out that she, she said it was actually a real thing. Like most of her angel sightings were imaginative in her imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were still real to her, but they were imaginative. Well, she identified this as being real physically actually real next to her it was this shiny thing it was probably about three feet tall and it had this dart like uh object that had light on the end of it and it it pierced her with it see now that there's a problem there that we're not getting the true story the real the real deal of what happened it's being kind of washed uh Oh yeah, that's it. That's the basic interpretive process of mm. religions, and that's mm. what I say is happening to the UFO uh, belief too. Because a lot of stuff happens, and then it gets like on Hangar One, for instance. You know, they take a MUFON account, an account from uh, an organization like MUFON, and they change it. So it's not the actual experience that this person experienced. It's it's changed to make it more. I don't know more interesting to people, I guess, but I mean, it's really a change. Yeah. It's, it's, so it is, yeah, the, it's, a, it's an interesting process. Well, right there again, I wonder who is this they that's doing the changing? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Wh- wh- who's this they? What? Wh- wh- and why are they stepping in and changing things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think I think that in each case it could be a different they for different reasons, mm. but altogether the process is the same. It gets changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that perhaps with the UFO event type thing, it's a definite. I mean, if we had the Project Blue Book, what do we have now? <laughs> we right. have to have some other way, you know, of uh, of shaping this narrative. And do you think that? The government, I'm just curious your opinion, obviously you don't have to answer this. Do you think that they are justified in keeping things secret from the general public? Okay, that's a good question. Do I think they're justified? Yeah. I, I don't know. Like honestly. as a, as a, what I want to say is like, as a US taxpayer, you know, do you feel that you are entitled to know the quote unquote, to know the truth. Because I think even in, and I haven't even mentioned this because I actually am not a fan of Jung's essay, Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. And that's why you don't hear me talk about it that much. I don't believe 
and I'm sorry to be interjecting Jung, I just asked you a question. I don't believe Jung is who we should be going to for insight and information into UFOs. I mean, Jung passed away in 1961. So, and he was looking at things psychologically. Uh, his, his ideas were not, they were not concrete. They were psychological. He was trained as a psychiatrist. And so I don't tend to look at what Jung said about UFOs uh, and, and really hang on his every word. But he did say that he, in fact, this is a quote, he called it a stupid policy. And he said that the public ought to be told the truth. I'm curious, do you think the public should be told the truth of whatever the government knows? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a hard question for yeah. you to answer, because first, I don't know what a, what the truth could be. Like, say, if, if it is, if, okay, so say, let's assume, you know, there is this government cover-up, or I would only imagine that there, if it is, they're covering it up because it might be disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. in fact, maybe there is justification for it, but if that, if that's the case, but um, I don't, I can't, I do know that we do have precedent for government cover ups with respect to UFOs. And there is, you know, if you go back and you look at anything that has to do with our history of space flight and things like that, mm-hmm. a lot of things are classified and yeah. covered up and it's just out there. It's just, you know, it's not, they're not, trying to say, oh, you know, we're telling you the truth. No, they're they're not lying. They're saying this is classified. Right. <laughs> you can't, you know, we don't want to tell you this. It's classified for various reasons. Um, now, I don't know. I mean, um, do we have a right to know? Um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of people already know things and it depends on your own, I mean, there are a lot of people who have experiences since my book was released. I'm inundated with people from all over the world sending me videos and really, um, yeah, their experiences and they're very similar. They're very similar. So um, I don't know what it is there, but there is something (laughs) now. Is it, is it our own stuff? It might be, or is it not from here? It might be not from here, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't, I still here, I can't conclude. I, I've done a lot of research, but right. still don't know. Right, right, right. I do yeah. have my own beliefs about it, but I tend to keep those off of podcasts. Sure, that's totally understandable. Yeah, because those beliefs could change, right? Yep. So with new data, the belief can change. I wanted to ask you about bilocation and levitation. Um, I ask you that because you mentioned that you were studying those things. And I, I used to listen to before I got into Jung, I used to listen to Carolyn Mace, who is an author, she's still out there. And she talked about Padre Pio, bilocating. And I thought, what? And then I never heard anybody mention it after that. And as far as levitation, I'm not surprised by that at all. Uh, the cities are practiced. And also I received TM instruction, transcendental meditation back in 1988. And there was an advanced course uh, after you've been meditating for a while, you could take the TM cities program, which I never did. And, and when you're meditating, you do this hopping, this, 
kind of levitating. And so that never surprised me. But um, in your research on Catholic saints, you studied that. And I was wondering if there was anything you'd like to tell us about that. Oh, absolutely. So it was it was by coincidence, actually, that um, while I was writing and, and doing the research for American Cosmic, I was asked to go to the Vatican and and look at the records, the canonization, which are the trial records for the, yeah. the case of sainthood for Joseph of Cop- Copertino. And he is well known as the levitating saint, right? So when you see him, his iconography shows him kind of flying up in the air. Um, so... I did. I did that. And at the same time, I, I looked at the records for Maria of Agreda, who is said to have bilocated, and they were contemporaries, one in Italy and one in Spain. And so her, her history, you probably know her history because she has um, churches and statues and things um, throughout the Southwest yeah. of the United States. Um, she's called the Lady in Blue. And she was supposed to have bi- bilocated in the 1600s from her cell. Um, in Spain to places in the Southwest. And, um, and she talked about them and wrote about them. Uh, okay. So these are the alleged um, things that happened. Now, what's interesting is that there in UFO, you know, think of the iconography of the UFO. A lot of it is funny. Okay. So a lot of it, you see like this UFO coming down and, and levitating a cow into its ship. Right. I think everybody's seen that like, you know, uh, meme, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of funny because in UFO, not funny, it's it's actually true that in a lot of accounts of UFOs, people describe levitation. So it was it was a very strange um, co, you know, co-research agenda that I was finishing American Cosmic while I was at the Vatican studying these two saints that were having these really intense experiences. And Maria said that she, what she did was that she was riding on the wings of angels to the new world through the sky. And she could look down and see the spinning of the earth. And I thought, that's so interesting. You know, I mean, again, if they lived today, perhaps we would say, you know, they're having experiences, abduction experiences or something like that, you know? Right. So were there, did you come across, I'm curious, any other saints that levitated or bilocated? I mean, I did look up their records because that's a big deal to do. You have to do, you know, you have to request those in advance and everything. But there are so many. Um, again, Herbert Thurston did, you know, we please look this up when I will afterwards yeah. or I'll, I'll look it up and I'll send you a link so that okay, you can great. post it for for your audience. I think yeah. your audience in particular would find his work really interesting because he lived in the early 20th century and he was a Jesuit who was also, he was a Jesuit priest who was very devout Jesuit, but also interested in psychic things, okay. things you know, all things psychic and paranormal. Oh, so cool. he did a lot. Yeah. He did a lot of looking into like poltergeists and he looked at, in fact, his book on poltergeists is so scary that I can't oh. read it. Oh, I tried to read it and I was like, you know, this is just too scary. Yeah, Then I me. won't be able to read it either. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the nightmare type material stuff. Okay. Um, nightmare material stuff is what I meant mm-hmm. to say. So, so, so he writes about the saint, the, all the saints that have been said to have levitated. And you can actually look it up on Wikipedia, levitating saints, and they will list all the saints and 
and, you know, their the alleged levitations and things like that. Mm-hmm. But Joseph was definitely, um, I went through his, his record, actually. Actually, I was able to digitize it and bring it back to the United States and have it. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, I was able to have it uh, translated. And there's a huge translation project underway with that, in fact. Oh, great. Um, yeah. And it's fascinating the things that are said about him. So one of the things I found when I was there at the Vatican in the Vatican archive was I looked at, cause I don't actually read that type of Latin well at all. Okay. So I could only, yeah, I could only like look at sections of the book and, and understand it. So, but I knew what I needed to get so that I could come bring it here and have, you know, there aren't a lot of people who do 17th century Italian mixed with Latin. <laughs> so we had to find people that did and then get, you know, have them do it. But what I did find though, and what, what was very obvious was that it looked to be about 50 manuscript pages long of people who attested to see him levitate. They basically mm. wrote their names in, mm-hmm. you know, in this book, basically this codex or whatnot, not codex, but manuscript, um, saying, yes, I saw him levitate. Now, this was during the Inquisition. So if you were found to lie, it would be very bad. It would go badly for you. So, I mean, there were so many people who came out to say that they saw him levitate. And um, I actually talked to uh, Father Gumpel, who is a former papal advisor, about the manuscript. And, you know, his interpretation was that it was another time. And this belief existed then, but doesn't now but i didn't tell him about ufos i couldn't because you know (laughs) i didn't think it was my place to say what about ufos father i wonder if the human ability to levitate was being studied um because i would think that our i don't know if it's our space agency or our military is probably looking into anti-gravity. I mean, it would be a lot easier for space travel if we had anti-gravity. And what is levitation but bypassing the laws of gravity, right? Absolutely. In fact, my book, my book, my um, my work on that, uh, you know, the essays that I had published from that type of work, uh, I did have people who were scientists and interested in, you know, uh, different types of propulsion or anti-gravity and things like that. They wanted to read it, which I, at first I thought was strange, but now I understand. A connection with bilocation is something that I was trained in, which is remote viewing. And because I like to go straight to the source, I was trained by one of the original viewers in the original unit uh, that was classified at Fort Meade in Maryland. So I'm very familiar with Uh, the ability to transcend space and time or to kind of, I guess, bilocation is more being in two places at once. So our body is sitting at a desk um, or in extended remote viewing, lying on the floor with a a blindfold and a blanket and uh, accessing the target. So these are all possible. These all might sound strange to some people, but... um, Hopefully it's becoming more and more normalized because these are real human abilities and we can't stay stuck in, uh, in our limitations. So um, thank you for, 
for writing about this and for opening up this world to so many people, including myself. Uh, I love this book and, and you have a lot of work. You also have done um, the introduction to a book, the preface of a book. Um, there will be links to all of those books in the show notes for this episode. And as I mentioned, your articles are available online for free uh, to download. And then would you tell us what uh, the future holds as far as your work and, and where you're going now? Sure. Well, now I find myself looking at AI and mm-hmm. the types of things that are happening with that. It's, I guess it's, it's a, you know, we kind of, I've progressed from media technologies now to AI technologies mm-hmm. and what, what, because it's happening at such an exponential rate. So I think something like that, but actually, Laura, I, I just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right now I'm just, um, I guess I'm just thinking about what next and, and still there's a wake that happened after American cosmic. And I guess I'm just in that wake and, and okay. soon we'll be out. But, uh, Yeah. So I'm not quite sure. Let's put it that way. But I think it has to do with AI. I heard you mention something you told Michael Shermer. You said that we quote Yoda more than Jesus or Shakespeare. I love that. (laughs) So true. So true. Thank you so much again for all of your time today, Dr. Pasolka. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely. I had a great time. Thanks for inviting me. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on Amazon Music, and it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to Mike Cleland, Whitley Strieber, and to Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Or, 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 or